Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. And thank you, Father, that through your word, you instruct us and you guide our lives. Help us to come to your word today. Help us to pay attentive care and help me to preach faithfully. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Edward Robinson became blind and deaf after a truck accident. Nine years later, he was struck by lightning and his vision and hearing were restored. Now, Christians will hear this and say that God is amazing. However, if Edwin was not healed and we only hear about how he was struck by a truck, would we still say that God was amazingly at work? There is something in us that don't want to acknowledge that God works through both good things and bad things. In today's narrative, we will see how God uses circumstances to bring about His will. Now, last week, we saw how Israel has rejected God as their king and demanded a king who is like the nations, even if he will take and take and take and they will suffer. God relents and agrees to give them a king. Our passage for today continues this narrative. We come to verse 1, and the scene has changed, and we are not sure how long has passed since the events of chapter 8. And we start here with this new scene that starts with a familiar term, there was a man. Now those with sharp biblical ears will pick up that this is exactly how 1 Samuel chapter 1 starts. There was a man from Ramah, led us to the story of his son, Samuel. And there was a man from Zorah, led us to the story of his son, Samson. So where is the story of this certain What will we see from his son? Now, this man was a rich man, but more than his riches, he had a wonderful son, Saul. Saul is described in verse 2 as the most handsome man in Israel. And he was a strapping and tall lad who would stand out in any crowd. So what I'm saying is that he's a bit like Mila. Well, obviously not. But we need to see that the narrator is trying to tell us that this is the kind of son that will have all well-meaning aunties asking his father, you're looking for a wife for your son? Nah? I know a girl who will be perfect for him. This is a boy who people will look up to because of his physical stature and his good looks, the kind that you will want for a king. So having introduced Saul, the story kicks off. In verse 3, we see that Saul's father's donkeys were lost, and so he told Saul to take one of the servants and go look for the donkeys. Now, as part of the author's introduction to this valiant young man, he reveals that Saul is given a mission, and thus we are allowed to see him in action. The author wants us to walk together through Saul's journey in verse 4 and see him in action. So in verse 4, we see how Saul looked for the donkeys through Ephraim, Salisha, Shalim, and the land of Benjamin, and yet they couldn't find them. The author is intentionally describing the search in order to heighten the tension and to portray the search for a donkey as an epic quest. But then we come to verse 5, and the story suddenly becomes anticlimactic. They reach the land of Zuf. Now, those who have been reading 1 Samuel very, very carefully will know that in 1 Samuel chapter 1, the very beginning of this book, it is revealed that Zuf is Samuel's great, great, great grandfather. 
In effect, the author is slyly saying, and they came into the land of Samuel. Suddenly, the events of the previous chapters will come to mind, and you start to wonder, how is Saul linked to Samuel? The expectation is now heightened as we prepare for this encounter between Saul and Samuel. But when Saul comes into the land, he gives up. He tells his servant that he wants to go back. He gives an excuse that he's worried for his father, who's going to be more worried about them than the missing donkeys. Is Saul a quitter or is Saul a gentle soul that is genuinely worried about his father? The author is being sly here, and he doesn't tell us clearly. He drops us hints without saying anything directly. Unfortunately, we see in verse 6 that Saul's servant hasn't given up yet. He has his hopes set somewhere else, not just in human effort. So in verse 6, he points Saul to God by reminding him of a man who was in the city. Now it is interesting to note that it's the servant here that takes the initiative to save this quest from failing. Even more interesting is the fact that despite Samuel being the only prophet at that time, he was the de facto ruler as the current judge of Israel, yet Saul didn't seem to know him. The narrative now pushes Saul to Samuel, so we know this encounter is coming and our questions will be answered. And note that in verse 7, Saul can only call him this man. It is as if somehow Saul is blind to the spiritual aspect of Israel. This would be like someone who grew up as a Christian in St. Mary's since childhood to adulthood, but doesn't know who their priest is, and he just calls them that man. Perhaps this is another clue to show us that deep down, there is something wrong with Saul, a spiritual blindness perhaps. Of course, again, the author doesn't make any clear reprimands. He just continues to narrate, and we see that it is the servant who was resourceful to have a coin to give to the prophet, so they don't have to give up on their plan. How lucky was Saul to have a servant who knew more about God's prophet than he did? A servant who wasn't happy to hear the master say, enough hard work, let's go home. And to have just enough coin so that the quest continues on and this time in search of a prophet instead. Now, friends, we are meant to see that it isn't luck, but rather God's hand at work, even through these small, tiny coincidences. God's will is being enacted through all these players who are being led forward to a steady direction. As the journey continues, it does look like the author is using this part of the narrative to very subtly hint at Saul's weakness. We see him almost giving up. We see him following his servant. We see him relying on his servant without whom this endeavor would be in vain. Well, it's not a bad thing. You would have expected more from the future king of Israel, wouldn't you? And so the adventure continues, and they went up the hill to the city. And here we see an encounter with a woman at a well. Our Old Testament senses should be tingling at this point. Think of Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. All of them had significant encounters with a woman at a well. Even Jesus had an important encounter with a woman at a well. The author draws our attention to the story and our anticipation that something big is going to happen builds up. Will he find the love of his life here? 
perhaps some profound life-changing experience? Surely this will be the climax. And yet, as we come to verse 12, the author has subverted our expectations. There's no wife to be found here, and neither is there great revelation, but they do get directions on how to see Samuel. Now, at this time, perhaps we may go, wow, lucky, what a chance encounter at the well. But if we think about the series of events, we can see that God is at work, so it's not about chance. This is why the author keeps on showing us coincidence upon coincidence and different ways the stories could be subverted, but then brings our attention back towards Saul meeting Samuel. The focus is really not on the woman or their response to meeting the most handsome man in Israel. Rather, the focus points to Samuel. The story continues with Saul getting the clue that he needs to find the prophet. The author, having tricked us with anticipation, now moves that anticipation forward to this meeting between Saul and Samuel, and in that process, heightened the stakes. And so they went up into the city, and they saw Samuel coming out towards them. Now, just like in our favorite TV shows and when you're watching a particularly interesting YouTube video, the author switches from the story to run an advertisement. However, this isn't just any advertisement. It's a message from the grand sponsor. In verse 15, the author gives us a flashback scene that sets everything that we have seen in its proper light. God has already revealed to Samuel that Saul will come. The man Saul is to be a fulfillment of the wishes of the people for a king like the nations, to rule over them, to lead them to war. And suddenly we see why the author was so intent in showing us how handsome, how tall Saul was. This is the type of king that the people are looking for. However, notice that he is to be anointed as prince over the people of Israel. You would have expected him to be called king. Now, the word prince used here can mean leader or commander as well, but it doesn't quite capture that kingly status. Now, there's wordplay involved here, which is quite funny, but we don't have time, so I'm going to leave you without telling you, and leave you asking for more instead. So then, we come to verse 17, and we see that when Samuel saw Saul, God told him, this is the man. Now, we know Samuel didn't like the idea of a king because he saw it as a rejection of himself and as a rejection of God. But interestingly, see how Samuel responds to Saul. There is no hint of bitterness or rejection on Samuel's part. Here is a man who does what God says despite his personal feelings. And that is a good example. So then the story snaps back to Saul in verse 18. And he approaches the man at this gate and asks him if he knows where the house of the seer is. Lo and behold, the man he approached was Samuel himself. Now at this point, we should just saying, you should just stop saying, wow, what an amazing coincidence, and just give credit to God. So with that, Samuel suddenly invites Saul to join him for a feast and settles the worry that Saul had about the donkeys. Now, of course, Saul must be shocked by Samuel's response. But what should really shock him is that in verse 20, Samuel basically says that all the good things of Israel is meant for Saul's house. And in response, Samuel offers him a token of that, a bed and breakfast. Now Saul answers humbly and points out how small his tribe is. 
and how the Benjaminites were not powerfully, powerful politically. So Saul, asked, so Saul asked the questions, why should Samuel exalt Saul? Now, it's interesting, the name Saul simply means asked for. So it is ironic that the people of Israel who has asked for a king are going to receive this asked for for their king. God isn't a stranger to irony. Saul doesn't know yet what God has planned for him, but the revelation is coming soon. In order to hint to Saul that God has chosen him for greatness, Samuel took him in for a feast. Saul was placed at the head of the table, and more than that, he was given the choice portion that is reserved for the VIP. Now, when I go back to Sramban to meet my parents, my mom will make sure that I get the choicest piece of mutton or chicken, much to my father's dismay. But what is happening here is even more heightened because when the prophet of God does this during a meal that involves a sacrifice, it signifies something greater. It is as if Saul is a groom at a wedding. Now, this meat was kept for him for this appointed hour. And this then points us to the, to the role that God has in preparing all this for Saul, so that Saul shall know the favor of the Lord, so that he will know that the Lord is on his side. With that, then, we come to verse 25, and we see that Saul sleeps on the roof, and when dawn comes, Samuel is there to greet him and send him off. Samuel did this because there was something he had to talk to Saul personally about. So he asked Saul to send his servant off first so that Samuel can tell him the word of God. All these things happening so far have been part of God's word coming true. God is at work and God has a plan for Saul. Now, Saul too shall get the answer to the question he asks. Why would Samuel treat him in this manner and shower him with honor and love? Who is Saul to Samuel? And verse 10 reveals the answer. Samuel anoints Saul, showing us that Saul is the anointed one, the king of Israel who is chosen by God. His mission, if he will choose to accept it, is to reign over God's people and save them from the enemies that surrounds them, particularly the Philistines. Then Samuel tells Saul of signs of things that will happen. These signs are given to Saul so that he will have assurance that what he had been told is real. God is with him, and he is to rule over Israel and protect them by destroying their enemies. Now, we can try to read into the signs. What does it mean that they will give him bread and wine? What does it mean that the encounter happens under an oak tree? And I think the danger is that we will overread into what's happening. So it's better to just take these signs as a confirmation of the prophetic word and actions of Samuel. After all, if these things happen exactly as Samuel has said, then Saul will know that he is not a madman, that he is truly a prophet acting under God's supervision, and that means Saul's appointment is a genuine appointment. Like I said, the purpose of all these signs is to assure Saul. The signs also tell Saul what he is to do. So in verse 5, we see that he is to go to Gibeath Elohim, which means hill of God. And however, despite the name, the Philistines have garrisoned their soldiers there, thus creating a contested region. Saul is to come there to meet a group of people who will prophesy as they worship God at this hill of God. And here, 
he is promised the Spirit of the Lord. Now, the coming of the Spirit in the Old Testament is, of course, very different from how the Spirit is freely poured out in the New Testament. Here, the Spirit is the enabling and the power of God to enable His judges to do His will. So we will see Saul's heart change as he is given power to accomplish what God wants him to do. Once he is done with this, he will meet Samuel to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice and peace offerings. So Saul hears all these things and makes his way in verse 9. And we see that even as he leaves Samuel, God gives Saul a new heart, signifying that God enables Saul so he isn't spiritually blind anymore. Then from here in verse 10, we see exactly what was predicted by Saul, sorry, what was predicted by Samuel happening. He met the people as promised, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. And people were shocked by this. And this is why they asked, what has happened to this son of Kish? He was never a prophet, but now, enabled by the Spirit, he does these things. And we see that this was such a strange thing to them that what he did became a proverb. Before there was such a thing as internet and memes, Saul became a meme in Israel. This saying, is Saul also among the prophets, captures the shock that such an unlikely person who has not been known for being spiritual is now genuinely displaying God's power in them in such a manner. And at this point, we must pause to ponder, what is happening? See, friends, this entire journey was actually one escalating narrative from the donkeys to meeting the woman at the well. We should be anticipating something, but the narrative doesn't resolve the story, but heightens the expectation just to get the tension higher and higher. No, Saul doesn't marry a woman he met at the well. The story moves on to point him to the prophet. No, Saul doesn't find his donkeys, but the prophet treats him special declares all good things of Israel is for Saul. And then, as if that's not enough, the prophet anoints Saul as king. Then he gets shown all these miraculous signs as proof, and as they happen one by one, our tension level should rise and rise until the very climax. What amazing thing is God going to do with Saul here? The climax of this story is when Saul is at the hill of God where this Philistine garrison was stationed. And here, the spirit rushes into Saul powerfully and he's fully on par with all the great Old Testament judges. Samuel has told Saul in verse 7 that when the spirit comes, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with him. When the spirit came powerfully to Gideon, he blew his horn to gather an army and whack the Philistines. When the spirit came to Samson, he picked up the jawbone of an ass and he swallowed an entire army of Philistines and totally slaughtered them. And now, the same thing happens to Saul. And what great things does he do? Verse 14. He goes back and tells his uncles about the donkeys. This is the great act of Saul in response to God giving him the Spirit and asking him to do what his hand finds to do at that hill of God that's occupied by the Philistines. He goes back home. Let that sink in. This entire passage then shows us how Saul, 
despite all that God promises and gives him, does not deliver. This was the man who would be perfect according to the people of Israel who wanted a king like the nation. Yet Saul is revealed here that despite being the most handsome and outstanding man in Israel, to be impotent when it comes to salvation. He himself didn't really believe what he heard from Samuel despite experiencing all these things. That is why he didn't tell his uncle about it. And so we see such a contrast with Samuel who believed in the word of the Lord and acted rightly in faith. That is the real point of this story. The author has trolled us with a story that doesn't deliver so that we look at Saul closely. Look at him the way God would look at him and not as man would look at him. As the story progresses in the coming weeks, we will see Saul doing good things and it looks like he's following God's word. But the passage introduces Saul's secret heart to us. Saul does not trust in the word of the Lord. While he will still do some good, ultimately Saul is going to fail. This is what should set our expectation moving forward from this story. So as we consider the application, let us remember what the passage shows us. God works through all things, good or bad, to bring about his promise to his people. We have to see God as the one who makes us chase after donkeys. And God as the one who also blesses us with good things. We shouldn't judge things based on our circumstances. And more importantly, we must consider what the word of God has to say about our situation. Thank God for the people in your life that are like Saul's servant who point you back to God. Be like this servant and help others to look to God's word. So when someone is upset over the circumstances, point them to God's word. Give them strength and encouragement by showing them what the Bible has to speak about the circumstances. It could be from Romans 5 when we are reminded why we rejoice in suffering. Or it could be from Romans 8 that reminds us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So whatever situation you find yourself in, giving advice or encouragement, point them to God's word because God is active in that situation. As we look to Saul's appointment, immediately we should remember how there is another person who was born to save his people. Our New Testament passage today, something that we would normally reserve for Christmas Day reading. But in light of how Saul comes here to save his people, it's good to be reminded of the coming of the true king that doesn't disappoint, Jesus. Jesus is the one who will succeed. Jesus comes to deliver his people from the greater enemy, sin and death. Jesus solves this big problem that was caused when Israel rejected their God for a human king. In Christ... We have a human king who is fully God, and he is the one who saves their people. So rest assured that the real king who can save his people has come. He's seated in power and is currently ruling over all things. So what should we be worried about in the light of eternity? So don't place our hopes in princes and kings and politicians and leaders. They're all flawed and sinful. While like Saul, they may achieve some good things, Ultimately, we cannot place our hope of salvation in them and they will fail us. So the next time you get triggered because of criticism of your 
favorite political party or China's government or your political heroes or leaders like Trump, ask yourself, are you idolizing them? Keep calm and trust in Christ. Trusting in Christ also isn't a passive thing. So remember to live out your lives in obedience to the king, doing the things he has asked you to do, pledging your allegiance to him in all the spheres of your life. Saul may not be worthy of following, and he takes, takes, takes from his people, but Christ is fully worthy, fully obedient to God, and he gives, gives, gives. Are you not blessed to have such a wonderful and perfect king to bend your knees to? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, that we do not need to rely on flawed men like Saul. Help us, Father, to put our hope and trust in you through your Son, Christ alone. And help us to trust you in every circumstances that we find ourselves in and always come to your word for guidance. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.